The other thing is if you have kids to make sure you're not bringing that many toys. And the key is the kids just need to start learning to play with sticks and and grass outside. I mean, and and they have a couple books, you know, soft cover books, not hardcover books that are heavy. They maybe get a couple, maybe two toys each, but it really, you don't want to be hauling a lot of toys. Well, I think the idea is that their playground is is the world, right? Uh, wherever we're traveling, that's their playground. Ultimately, you know, they don't need those things, uh, those material things. And uh, it, it is funny when we do visit other people, other families, and that's actually another way to gain access to these toys is go visit another family or, or visit some friends who are living abroad. Uh, and then uh, you get you get access to all their toys, and they tend to have wall to wall toys. Uh, and so you should see our kids' faces when they when they see that. But personally, uh, that's not what we want for our kids. That's not what we want personally. We don't want wall to wall toys, and I actually don't think that they'll be very happy if they had that many toys. Yeah, so we're very thoughtful about that. Are you interested in learning more about owning your own portfolio, cash flowing rentals? If so, we invite you to take our free mini course, The Crash Course in Cashflowing Rentals. When you take our mini course, you'll learn the strategies we use to build our portfolio. You'll also get to see several of our students featured who have successfully built their own portfolios as well. To take our crash course, link to semiretiredmd.com forward slash mini course, M-I-N-I dash C-O-U-R-S-E or visit our website at semiretiredmd.com and link to the crash course on cash flowing rentals there. You may also want to join a waitlist for our introductory course, Zero to Freedom Through Cash Flowing Rentals, while you're at our website too. We'll see you there. Have you ever dreamed of owning a vacation home? What if it could double as an investment property that makes you money and helps you save on taxes? Our new course, Accelerating Wealth, short-term rental blueprint will teach you how to purchase and set up your short-term rental the right way. Learn more about the course at semiretiredmd.com slash str hyphen course. Welcome to the Doctors Building Wealth Podcast, the place where we talk about the strategies, habits, and mindset that separate wealthy docs from those who are not. We're your hosts, Leiti and Kenji. Welcome to another episode of Doctors Building Wealth Podcast. Today, Kenji and I are going to be talking about the logistics of being a digital nomad with your family. And we've actually done this now twice in our lives. Uh, back in 2017, Kenji and I had a 12-month-old and decided to take the year off and travel with her. Um, and we did a lot of traveling through Australia, New Zealand, and uh, Europe at that point. And then again, in 2021, we decided to be digital nomads. At that point, we had three children traveling with us with the fourth kind of joining us intermittently. And one of our kids was four months old. And then we had a three-year-old and a five-year-old. So when we started, it was quite a uh, different experience than traveling back with one child back in 2017. We know that a lot of students in our community are now getting to the point that they're achi- they've achieved financial freedom, time freedom, or maybe they're kind of partway there and they really want to take some time off and enjoy the process and the journey. And so we've seen a lot of people in our community start to take sabbaticals and start to uh, travel, you know, during the summer even more than they used to. So we really know that this is going to be 
something that's important to a lot of you now, but also going to become more and more and more important to you as you continue to build financial freedom through real estate. Yeah. And also wanted to mention that during those times that we took off, we actually closed a number of different transactions. Uh, we also purchased a uh, property uh, long distance as well, a property that we had, we never ended up actually seeing the inside of. We saw the outside of it. We drove by one time. Um, we actually bought and sold that property without ever actually seeing the inside of it. Yeah. So Kenji's point is that even if you're taking some time off, keep in mind, you can continue to build your real estate portfolio. So it doesn't mean uh, if you're taking off a year to travel that you can't continue to buy properties. And so we'll talk through how we did that while we were traveling. Yeah. And that's assuming that you have all this, all the things set up correctly, which we'll talk about, uh, but you definitely need to make sure that you have prepared for that ahead of time. And so that's what we're going to help you help you do here uh, as, as we go down the list. Okay, so here we're going to start with the logistics of traveling and being a digital nomad with your family. So number one consideration is your job. So I know a lot of you guys are working full-time or maybe you're working part-time at this point, or maybe you have a spouse who's working full-time. So that's going to be number one, especially for the doctors out there who really need to be in the clinic or be in the hospital. So number one, obviously, answer is you can quit. You can quit and take a time off and then go back and find a new job at the end. Maybe you even get to the point that you quit and you secure another job, but say, hey, I'm not starting for a year and just kind of set it up that way. So I think that's a real possibility and probably the most easy one that you can think of. The other one is you could actually take leave or take a sabbatical. And we've seen people now do this for six weeks, eight weeks, be able to take some time off, have a little bit of a chunk to travel with their family and then go back. And then another option is to uh, cut back work, which is what what I ended up doing and switching to moonlighting. And that year in 2017, what we ended up doing was we banked a number of different shifts. Uh, and then we also uh, came back to Seattle and did a whole bunch of shifts in like a three-week period in order to kind of catch up and uh, make sure that you know we we could do this every six months. And basically, that's what we did. We banked enough shifts. And we also did enough shifts to be able to travel for a six-month period. Yeah. So we were very lucky to be hospitalists who could say, hey, we'll come back and work like three, four weeks in, in a row. But in order to get that, we, you know, get a lot of months off. And so that's that's how we managed to work it. So it, it may be possible to actually maintain your job, maintain your health insurance, which was our real concern at that point, but still take chunks of time away to be able to travel and do things with your family. So besides your job, I think a number one is going to be health insurance. I know this was a big deal for us because when we did the math, the amount of health insurance we thought we were going to have to pay was around $25,000 a year for our family. And so that's a huge expense that we wanted to make sure that we thought about and planned out ahead of time. So as I mentioned that first year in 2017, we maintained our health insurance because we maintained our jobs and we went back to Seattle and just did a ton of shifts. What else we've done? Um, we've also used Cobra. So that's what we did this last time. Um, after I quit my halftime job, we used Cobra and you can actually use Cobra for up to 18 months. And I felt really strongly about maintaining our current health insurance because uh, I was pregnant at the time that I quit. So I wanted to make sure that I had that Cobra in place, kept the same health insurance. And so that's what we chose to do. However, it was more expensive than the alternative, which was actually just signing up for state health insurance. So while we were in Washington state, I could have uh, just joined, you know, like Obamacare equivalent of Washington State and would certainly have been cheaper. And I've done that before in the past as well when I was just moonlighting at multiple hospitals. I think one of the important things to talk about here is that there's there's really kind of a, a mindset block that a lot of people have when it comes to health insurance. This is the one thing that people say, well, I can't travel or I can't 
do this because I don't know what I'm going to do about healthcare. And so I think the key point is that you can figure it out. Uh, there are solutions out there. Uh, and so it's just a matter of solving the problem, sitting down and solving the problem and make sure that you don't get blocked by this thought that you can't do it. Now, on top of the health insurance in the U.S., what I've purchased before is a whole year's worth of international health insurance that kind of it's it sits on top your U.S. health insurance. And it allows you if you get hurt, for example, that they'll pay thirty five thousand dollars to get you back to the U.S. so that you can use your health insurance. So that's kind of like a disaster plan. Um, and last time I did that when we were traveling, buying a whole year on top, it was about five hundred dollars for the whole year of coverage internationally. And they basically make you list all the places you're going to go. And you can always update that list if you're going to a different place than you had originally planned to make sure that you get that coverage. Um, and again, I put that on top of our US-based health insurance. Now, uh, the what we have now living in Puerto Rico is we have Puerto Rican health insurance to cover us while we're in Puerto Rico, but I have added global health insurance on top of that. Global health insurance covers the US and every other country except Brazil. Ours, for some reason, does not cover Brazil. And what that allows us to do is get healthcare anywhere in the world. So let's say one of us gets really sick. We could actually go to the U.S. and get treatments for cancer, let's say, or we could decide to go to Europe and get treatments. So we have international healthcare um, and we can choose where we're going to get our healthcare. Now, that is more expensive than just that disaster plan that sits on top of your U.S.-based health insurance, but it ended up being about $1,000 a month for our family to be able to cover us. And I think it's well worth it to have that flexibility of, you know, knowing that no matter where we are, we are covered. Um, the other thing to say is that it because it's not Obamacare kind of coverage, it doesn't cover pre-existing conditions. So that's the one thing you need to be aware of, that that can be a little bit challenging to, if you have a lot of pre-existing conditions, you may want to seek care for those within your state, if you maintain your state health insurance, uh, rather than depending on your global health insurance plan. So that covers insurance pretty, I, I think, substantially. The next one is state rules. So Kenji and I were very lucky to live in Washington state when we traveled back in 2017. And Washington state has a number of rules about what equals residency. And so a lot of states will have residency requirements of a certain number of days you have to be in the state. Washington did not have that, but they had requirements like you need to have a driver's license, you needed to be to vote, things like that. And so we maintained all those pieces in place. So we were able to maintain our state residency, even though we were traveling uh, constantly on the move around the world. And so what you really need to think about and look at is your state requirements for residency to make sure that you can maintain your residence in that state if that's what you want to do for your health insurance and for uh, all your other insurances and for your taxes. Um, because that's really, really important, especially if you live in a no income tax state and you want to maintain that. Let's talk about taxes, actually, since we're already talking about it. So again, we maintained our state in Washington back then. Right now we're in Puerto Rico. So we maintain our state, our tax I guess, territory tax, tax home, home here in Puerto Rico. But for some of you guys, you may decide, hey, I actually want to move somewhere else. Um, maybe you stay in your state for three months and then you want to move somewhere and stay six months. Let's say you move to Europe. 
If that's the case, you're really going to have to think more in depth about taxes and probably get a CPA in wherever you're moving and then maybe even a lawyer to kind of consult and make sure that you're paying taxes in both the place you live as well as the United States if you're a U.S. resident, uh, U.S. citizen. So uh, it adds complexity, but it's not impossible to do. There are expat CPAs who will help you do that. And then you'll need a CPA in the country that you're living in as well. Yeah, I think the other thing that you could think about is you may consider changing your tax home to a no income tax state, right? Like Washington and Texas. And there's a, a few others that are no state income tax states. But again, as Leiti said, you know, you need to really look at the residency requirements. What's required for you to make that your new tax home? Uh, because let's say you're coming from California. Well, California is going to want to uh, maintain that grip on you. Uh, they're not going to want to let you go. So if you're going to really establish your residency in a different state, you need to kind of see, okay, what are the requirements for me to get out of a state like California and, and have them not consider me a uh, resident of that state? And uh, what's it going to take for a new state to adopt me as their uh, new uh, tax home? So that's something you really want to think about, especially if you're thinking about really trying to lower uh, your state income taxes. Yeah. And make sure you're paying attention to the visas as well. So for example, when you go to Europe, you want to make sure that you're not overstaying your visa and then um, maybe setting yourself up to be actually a resident of, of whatever country you're in in Europe and needing to pay European taxes as well as the US taxes. Um, so always pay attention to your visas. And if you know, for example, hey, I want to go live in Europe for the year. That's just what I want to do. Um, then make sure you're getting that right visa and make sure you have those appropriate uh, tax considerations to make sure you're not double taxed. And so um, have have the right CPAs and specialists in your corner for that. Okay, the next thing you're probably thinking about is your house. So I know a lot of you have primary residences. We were lucky enough to not have a primary residence. And so this last time that we did this, uh, we just put all of our stuff in storage. So it was, I think, much easier. We got rid of a lot of things and then the remainders we put into storage. And I'll talk about the car a little bit later too. Hey, I think the key with this one is to just plan ahead, right? I mean, we are very conscious about not accumulating a lot of things, uh, getting rid of things along the way so that when it comes time to putting things in storage, it's not as... Uh, as crazy as uh, having a house that you lived in for 20 years and you have stuff stuffed all over the place and in the attic in the basement. And so just really be conscious of that uh, and know that uh, it, it's going to feel insurmountable if you have stuff everywhere. But if you've paired along the way and really cut back and you're conscious about the things that you buy, then it's going to be a lot easier for you to kind of make that move and put things in storage. You're going to have a lot fewer storage spaces. Yeah. So I think that option, if you own a primary residence is you can sell right? Mm -hmm. And you can put all your stuff in storage and you can just be kind of without a house and have that kind of freedom. Another option is you could just close up your house and you could leave it empty. Um, if you were going to do that, though, I'd make sure I'd have people come in and check on your house because if there's a water leak or something that happens when you're not there and it sits for six months, that might be really bad. Or if you get robbed, you want to make sure that somebody is checking up on that house pretty frequently. Yeah, another idea I want to throw out there is that you could have a number of short-term rentals across the country, right? Which is what we've done. Now we have a place in Washington, we have a place in Texas, we have a place in Puerto Rico. So it's really nice to have all these different homes in different places and they're income-producing homes, right? They're not a liability, uh, they're assets because they're they're short-term rentals, 
uh, and they're putting money in our pocket every month. Except the Puerto Rico place is going to be a primary residence. Right. So it is going to be a liability. That one is is the exception. So yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, you could even take your primary residence and turn it into a short-term rental for a year. Make it income producing. Make sure you're talking to your CPA about this because uh, we've, we've definitely had CPAs advise people in our community, hey, take your primary residence, turn it into a short-term rental for a year, you know, write off that bonus depreciation. And then down the road, maybe you can move back in there. That's going to really depend on your CPA. And so uh, talk strategy with your CPA and figure out the right way to do it um, if you want to keep your house rather than sell it. But I do think that's important is that if you do want to create a tax shelter, turning that primary residence into a short-term rental, again, assuming that the numbers work, assuming that it's going to cash flow, you got to make sure it cash flow is number one. And then number two, you do get potentially that tax savings, as long as you're materially participating uh, in that short-term rental, and that'll allow you to shelter that W-2 or 1099 income. Yeah. And we'll put a link below in the show notes to an article we wrote about the tax benefits of short-term rentals. For those of you who want to explore this option, who want to read a little bit before you go in and talk to your CPAs about it. Next one is your car. So uh, number one, you could just sell your car. That's always a great option. Um, What we decided to do this last time is we put uh, Kenji's car in storage. You can put it in storage where it's not climate controlled, for example, and just let it sit for however long uh, it's there. It might cause some issues with your car and restarting it and making sure that no mice have moved into the engine and such things um, later on down the road. Or you could put it in a temperature controlled one. um, And that's what we ended up doing with Kenji's car last time. Uh, We actually put it in a place where they store uh, fancy cars and they'll plug in his car and... uh, and paid a certain amount of membership fee per month to make sure his car was looked after. I think another option along the lines of a short-term rental is that you could actually have a car in the garage that your renters could rent. So it's like having a a Turo or a car rental Mm -hmm. facility in your garage. Uh, And I think that's another cool option because your car is being paid for, um, but you're also able to use it whenever you're staying at that short-term rental. In that case, you probably could write it off as an expense for your Mm -hmm. property too. So just to, again, discuss with your CPA. You could also ship your car. um, And that's another thing that we did this last time when we were um, traveling. We actually shipped our car to Hawaii to stay with my parents. And and so now we have a car in Hawaii. Whenever we're there, we can actually move all the big family around in our car. The next big one for those of you with kids is school. Um, And I will say that with little kids, school is a little bit easier because I I think there's less rules and regulations and concerns than when a kid is, you know, 14, 15, 16, but it doesn't mean it's impossible. It's actually very, very possible. So first of all, what you could do is you could homeschool your kids yourself. So you could take a whole year. There's tons and tons of resources out there uh, where you can buy a whole grades worth of resources. Um, Last one I bought last year was actually, it's only, it was only eight pounds for you know, first grades worth of books and kind of a syllabus. And you just work through with your kids, homeschooling them while you're traveling. And they're getting that kind of supplemental education of travel and seeing the world, which is in my point, very invaluable, I think. You can also hire a nanny or teacher, which is what we're doing right now, to travel with you. And so this works really well if you have smaller kids who need a lot of care, and then you also want them going to school, you could hire somebody to who gets to travel, and that's really a perk for them. But at the same time, they are teaching your school kids, and they're taking care of your kids. Um, and so in our case, we have a first grade teacher who is traveling with us. 
The other thing you can do is get online school. So especially if you have older kids who can sit and do online school during the day, um, you can do that. And oftentimes online schools may be even free depending on your state. So I know when we were looking into it for Washington state, online school was actually free um, for us to get, but they were going to require six hours of work a day from each kid and three hours a day needed to be online interacting with the teacher and three hours was working on their own. That didn't really work for us because of time zones, right? Because if we're in Europe and our kids are supposed to be in school, you know, in front of a teacher from eight to 11 every day, 8 a.m. to 11 Pacific time, that's like right in the middle of the night in Europe. And so that made that option not as uh, feasible for us. But you can see if your kids are, let's say, teenagers and you're going to just be one time zone away most of the time, that might be a really good option. And again, the state pays for a lot of uh, those online schools. And that's, I mean, that's incredible because you're you're not having to have any in pay, pay for those to have a teacher teaching your kid. Um, and then finally, the other thing that you could do is put your kid in school in a different location. So let's say you're going somewhere for six months, you want to put your kid in school, it's very, very possible to do. Um, I know when I was a kid, actually, I lived in the Pacific Islands, my parents sent me with my grandmother to Ohio for like four months, and she put me in public school in Ohio for like three months. And so I was just able to do that. I don't know why, but I, that's what they decided to do. And so I went to public school and um, internationally, you know, there are international schools that are going to have options like that too. And finally, you could actually, if you're going to stay someplace for three or six months, you could get a caregiver locally there who, you know, comes in and teaches your kids or uh, is a nanny for your kids. This episode is brought to you by Dan Peck of Caliber Home Loans. If you're an experienced investor, you'll know just how important it is to have a lender who knows how to work with investors. Now, we've been working with Dan and his team for over five years now, and he's our go-to whenever we need a residential loan for our investment properties. Now, if you're new to investing, you might not know this, but your lender can sometimes be the difference between getting a great deal or completely missing out on it because your lender couldn't close a deal. Now, I did want to point out that Dan can help you not only with your investment properties, but also if you're looking to buy a primary residence or a vacation home. So the next time you're looking for a residential lender, be sure to email Dan at semi-retiredmd at caliberhomeloans.com to get a free consultation. This week's podcast is sponsored by our course, Zero to Freedom Through Cashflowing Rentals. Zero to Freedom Through Cashflowing Rentals is a 10-week online course focused on helping physicians and high-income earners go from knowing little to nothing about real estate investing to confidently buying the cashflowing rentals that will allow them to achieve financial freedom and work in medicine or their day jobs on their own terms. Our course is only open to registration twice a year, so be sure to get on the waitlist at semiretiredmd.com and check out the course details on our course landing page. Okay, let's talk about banking. Yeah, and banking is uh, really important, uh, I think, especially for those who have real estate portfolios. Uh, if you're going to be doing any transactions remotely, a lot of banks, the big banks, are going to want you physically in the branch in order to either open up an account or wire transfer uh, any amount of money. And so this is a problem that we ran into when we were trying to uh, purchase a property abroad. Uh, well, while we were traveling abroad, we were looking to buy a property in the States. Uh, and we had to do a number of different things. Uh, we had to get power of attorneys. We had to transfer money to 
uh, parents uh, who then purchased the property with with the money that we transferred to them. So there were there were a lot of kind of uh, hoops we had to jump through. Um, now what we do is we have a local community bank where we've built up a really great relationship, and they allow us to open up accounts, wire transfer, do everything remotely, and so we don't have to actually physically be. Uh, in in the United States, we could actually do everything from abroad, uh, and that has been a game changer. So that's one thing that I would say to anyone looking to travel: make sure that you have a bank, uh, make sure that they can do everything remotely, uh, and you know that relationship uh, is is absolutely key because uh, there may be something that we're not even thinking about, uh, but I'm confident that uh, our bank will just figure it out because they're problem solvers, uh, and so far they've been able to do everything for us. So. I would also recommend getting that power of attorney uh, with mm-hmm. your parents or whomever you're very close with just for the entire year to kind of cover you. So if in case you do decide you find a property and you're in Europe and you're going to be there for six months that you don't have to fly back and just have that power of attorney sitting there waiting for you if you need to close that they can go sign for you. Yeah. And, and there's a, uh, you know, laws are changing around online notarization. I mean, this could be a whole category in itself that we could talk about, but I'm just going to stick to it, uh, stick, stick this in the category of banking. But uh, there are a lot of online notarization services out there, and that's becoming more widely accepted. And so that's another possibility for you to get a power of attorney or maybe even signing closing documents uh, using online notarization. uh, And maybe you can uh, uh, do that remotely. But that's something that you need to research ahead of time. You need to research the country you're going to uh, and make sure that the online notarization service approves that and also make sure that whoever you're signing the documents with, whether it's a a lender uh, or the title escrow company, make sure that they're going to also accept online notaries ahead of time. Also, the other thing we use is Schwab. We have investor checking at Schwab. And what that gives us is an ATM that we have no ATM fees on internationally. So we can use it anywhere at any ATM and they just reimburse you for the fees. I I really have had great experience with having had that bank account um, and being able to access our money anywhere. And it's so easy for me to say, hey, we're traveling to these five countries um, because you can do it all online without calling them, which is, I think, really, really key. I don't have to spend time talking to a credit card company about my travel. Yeah, but we have run into the problem where our either our card number or whatever some something happened with our card. It got stolen. Um, yeah, actually, so, the number got stolen from the ATM in right. uh, in Indonesia. No, where were we? Bali. Yeah. yeah. So, so if that happens, then you know your card is no longer going to work. So you need to have backups, and so make sure that you have other. Uh, debit cards where you can withdraw money or you have access to money, maybe maybe in a crypto wallet these days, right? So make sure that, again, you can access your money, uh, have multiple ways of accessing it, uh, because uh, if you only have one option and uh, your card is uh, stolen or the number is stolen, uh, then the bank is, uh, is going to shut down that card and you're not going to be have a way to access cash. Yeah, that's a really good point. I would definitely take uh, pictures of your credit cards on both sides too, mm-hmm. um, just to have that in case your wallets get stolen or anything like that. But yes, have multiple options so that you're never in a situation that you cannot get cash. That's a great point. So one of the most important categories here is the mail. Uh, and, you know, question is, how do you continue to get mail and, you know, who who opens that mail for you? Uh, how do you retrieve checks and deal with those and deposit those, right? So especially if you have a rental business and you're getting checks mailed to you, you want to make sure that you can do all the all those uh, all those types of things uh, remotely. And so what we did very early on, and this is actually right when we started our real estate journey, we went 
completely remote right mm -hmm. from the beginning. Uh, and that has been an amazing move. And what we did was we got something called a traveling mailbox. Uh, and we can put a link to uh, traveling mailbox below if you're interested in signing up for it. But we use Traveling Mailbox for our rental properties, but at the same time, we also actually use Traveling Mailbox for our personal mail. Mm -hmm. And so right from the beginning, uh, we actually had all of our mail go to Traveling Mailbox. So just think about credit card statements, mortgage statements, any insurance statements, uh, you know, health insurance uh, cards, That all that stuff went to Traveling Mailbox. What's cool about it is that they open the mail, they scan it. Uh, if there are checks, they will actually deposit the checks for you. Uh, and so it really is a remote service that allows you to handle all of your mail and they thought of everything. So any type of mail they can take care of. And also they can mail anything too. So you can just mark the things that you want uh, to have mailed and then you put in the address. They calculate the shipping no matter where you are. They'll figure it out and they'll get that uh, mail to you, the physical mail to you uh, just by mailing it to you. So that, that has been an invaluable service. The other hidden benefit that most people never think about is that what it's done for us is that it's made moves very easily. Anytime we move. We've, we've moved maybe like yeah. 10 times together yeah. so far, just to different residences. And so imagine having to call every single credit card company, mortgage company, everything, right? Just imagine having to call every single one of them and changing it to the new address 10 times, right? That amount of work is just crazy. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. Uh, and so what, what's been great about it is that you just have to make the change one time and that has saved us again, like a lot of time, we never have to change our address whenever we move um, because we have that static same address uh, that never changes. Yeah. And so think about the situation where we lose a credit card or we lose our wallet, right? We could call the credit card companies, have all the new credit cards sent to our traveling mailbox and have them ship it to us in Europe, for example. So that's kind of the worst case scenario. It's going to certainly take a delay of time, but we can ultimately, we can get things from them like health insurance card, credit cards, wherever we are in the world. Um, and also read our mail every single week and not get behind and miss things because we're gone for a month, which can be really dangerous when you're a business owner and you really need to stay on top of things. Yeah. Well, then imagine if you have an assistant, when once you get your portfolio up to a certain size, Imagine you have an assistant who goes through the mail for you yeah. uh, and just highlights the most important ones, filters through uh, any potential junk mail, although Traveling Mailbox does get rid of the majority of the junk mail, but there's still going to be some junk mail that gets through. Um, but imagine having somebody go through that mail every week uh, for you and then just really minimizes the time that you spend on mail. Okay. We didn't talk about where to stay yet. So let's talk about that. So you're traveling, where should you stay? Um, for us, we always stay in Airbnb, VRBOs, kind of housing rentals, because what we really want is a number of bedrooms. We want washer, dryer. We want dishwasher. We want to be able to cook. And ideally, we want to be in places you know, near parks or with backyards or pools for the kids so that they have something to do during the day. And so that's what we've always done is Airbnbs, but they do get really quite expensive. Sometimes you can negotiate a longer stay discounts. And sometimes you can also go to the direct booking website instead of booking through Airbnb or VRBO and get a discount um, if you can find that direct booking website. And so 
Those are the kinds of things that we will do to reduce costs, but I would say it's still pretty expensive. Alternatives uh, is you can buy your own short-term rental, which we talked about. If you know you're going to be going to a place, I mean, we have one student, for example, uh, was living in California, decided to uh, move to Texas for the no income taxes, right? Is uh, living in Texas, but said, boy, Texas summers are terrible. And so then went and uh, bought some short-term rentals in Portugal. And so now she has the ability to go to Portugal for the summer, for example, um, and stay there. And so that is owning your own short-term rental that's making you money, like Kenji mentioned, but also you can use it. And there are whole kind of, there's the ability to write off some of those short-term rental expenses off your uh, U.S. taxes. So keep that in mind too. Make sure you have a CPA who understands uh, the laws, tax laws of wherever you're buying. Yeah, um, there's there's appreciation for uh, short-term rentals abroad, uh, rental properties abroad in general. So uh, if you do have something like real estate professional status, or if you're taking advantage of the short-term rental tax loophole, uh, then uh, you will have the ability to uh, shelter your W-2 or 1099 income. Of course, we're not CPAs, so make sure you talk to your CPA yeah. about it using depreciation. And then we've also had a number of CPAs kind of advise us that we can uh, collect real estate professional hours for uh, short-term rentals abroad too. So the time you're spending on there, you could uh, you know, potentially count towards getting real estate professional status in the US and again, ta- get those tax benefits. So again, really great real estate CPA you need on your team. Another one is home swaps. So we've also seen some of the people in our community do home swaps with each other if they own short-term rentals and they want to stay in each other's short-term rentals or stay even in each other's primary residences for a little bit of time. So if you want three months away and you uh, and you have somebody else in your community, you could actually do like a primary residence home swap, which may be a little bit cheaper for you. Now, one of the questions people are going to ask is, how often should I move if I have kids? Uh, and we have now moved. I mean, we've moved sometimes like two every two to three days. We've done uh, places where we stayed for like several months at the time. At a time, I feel pretty strongly now that the optimal amount to move with our family is four to six weeks. I'm really moving every week or less than every week is painful with the kids that we have. Um, There's all kinds of inefficiencies of unpacking and packing every time. So you really lose a lot of hours each time you do that. I love six six week stays. It seems like enough time to settle in, really get to know a place, really get to get into the rhythm of life, continue to work. You know, for us, we're working uh, during the weekdays. And so, but you also have enough time to explore that area if it's if it's the six week uh, time period. Yeah, I think one of the downsides is that if you uh, end up in a short term rental that you don't love, uh, then you're kind of stuck there for six weeks, that's right? True. Uh, so that's kind of one downside that I've ex- uh, that I've experienced. Uh, I would love to kind of solve that one uh, somehow uh, because I don't necessarily trust the ratings that are in there. I think people inflate ratings, uh, and uh, and the picture sometimes uh, are a lot nicer than the place. Uh, and so that's one thing that I don't think I've quite solved. But maybe with enough visits uh, to a particular place, we'll find the the, the short-term rentals that we love. Uh, and that's one way to solve that problem. Yeah. And we've done that in Hawaii, in mm-hmm. Kailua. We've gone back to the same short-term rental and stayed there you know, for a couple months at a time, several times. And that's been really great because, again, you build that familiarity. It's almost like owning that second residence, but in places that it doesn't make sense for the cash and cash return to actually buy. That's the optimal is to use somebody else's short-term rental, but stay there long periods of time. And again, uh, you can often negotiate cheaper rates, and then you can also uh, book through the booking website. So I think that's another really ideal one. 
Okay, I wanted to talk about packing um, because packing uh, is an ordeal with uh, this many kids, right? We have three little kids now. Right now, they're ages 15 months, four and six. So there's a lot to think about when you pack. Um, One of the things I think that we that's kind of been game changer is using cubes because it allows to kind of unpack and pack much more quickly. If you're staying only for a couple short, a uh, couple days, for example, you might even leave the stuff in the cubes, but just put the cubes in the drawers and it'll keep things a little bit more organized. Um, and it also allows you to kind of differentiate things that you don't even need to open. So for example, we travel with a pharmacy with a lot of meds, uh, just in case, right? You know, inhalers, antibiotics, you know, all those meds are in, in the pharmacy. If we don't have to open it, great. It just sits in our suitcases in the cube and we don't have to go through it every single time. And so it's labeled right in the outside pharmacy and we don't have to look at it that frequently. We also pack a family suitcase. So a family suitcase is when we're going, I mean, sometimes we're traveling six, eight months at a time, right? The family suitcase has things like dishwasher pods, you know, laundry detergent, not the pods, but we actually use uh, sheets, laundry detergent sheets, because they're lighter and they're not all that fluid you have to carry. Um, it'll have leftover food from one place that we want to carry to the next place. If we have the space to carry the weight, it's going to have all of the kids' uh, school books and things like that in there. Um, and it will have some kind of things like floaties and things that we can't fit other places. But that family suitcase is, I think, really important because there are a lot of things that are sh- shared in the family, especially if you're traveling long periods of time that you don't necessarily uh, think of that you're going to actually need a lot of times like Airbnbs won't be fully stocked. And so you want to have dish soap with you and you don't want to be buying a dish soap uh, like a Dawn every time you go to a new place. And so uh, we always have a family suitcase. The other thing is if you have kids to make sure you're not bringing that many toys. Uh, And this is also something we've had to train uh, our nannies with over time is they tend to bring a ton of toys with our kids. And the key is the kids just need to start learning to play with sticks and and grass outside. I mean, and and they have a couple books, you know, soft cover books, not hardcover books that are heavy. Uh, They maybe get a couple, maybe two toys each, but it really, you don't want to be hauling a lot of toys. Well, I think the idea is that the play, their playground is, is the world, right? Uh, wherever we're traveling, that's their playground. Uh, ultimately, you know, they don't need those things, uh, those material things. And uh, it, it is funny when we do visit other people, other families, and that's actually another way to gain access to these toys is go visit another family or, or visit some friends who are living abroad. Uh, and then uh, you get, you get access to all their toys and they tend to have their, you know, wall-to-wall toys uh and so you should see our kids faces when they when they see that but but uh, but personally uh that's not what we want for our kids that's not what we want personally we don't want wall-to-wall toys and i actually don't think that they'll be very happy if they had that many toys yeah so we're very thoughtful about that and then lastly we we really try to underpack because we know we're going to end up buying stuff wherever we are and so we want to be able to have extra weight where we can buy clothes let's say or we ended up uh, just our last trip, we had some leftover rice. And because we have extra weight, we could carry that leftover rice to the next place. So the next leftover pasta, the spices, you can imagine you don't want to buy paprika every single place you go. And so I'm carrying spices as well. And you want to be able to accumulate a little bit of stuff and be able to bring it back if you want to. And so uh, underpack and wait before you go on the trip. All right, let's talk about our last two uh, logistical items. Uh, the first one is phones uh, and what to do with your phone. And so, yeah, we used to uh, have to buy uh, a phone and then have a SIM card. 
uh, and go through that whole mess. But nowadays, uh, it's pretty easy. Uh, you you can either just rely on Wi-Fi, uh, and most phone plans now, uh, most phones, the iPhone has a way for you to uh, just connect to the Wi-Fi, and then it connects to uh, AT and T or Sprint or T-Mobile. Uh, and so it's just like having your home uh, home phone, and uh, you can access your voicemail uh, and do all those things that it was used to be actually very difficult to do. Um, and so that's what we do now. Uh, and uh, and then also. Uh, AT&T, for example, has a plan where you can just pay $10 uh, uh, every day to basically use your phone in that foreign country, just like your regular phone. And so that's that's been really great, a uh, game changer. And so that's what we end up doing. It definitely increases your monthly bill, but it's it's not a really big deal in the end. Well, it does cap too. And right. so for both of us, if we decided to do that instead of instead of using Wi-Fi all the time with our phone, um, there's a cap on your plan and how much you maximum spend per month um, with the extra phone bill charges. Um, and then the last thing we wanted to talk about was groceries. So especially when we travel in the U.S., we order our groceries. And so you can order from Costco or you can order from Whole Foods, for example, on Amazon or Instacart. There's a lot of different ways to get order delivery and you can get it so that they deliver it right, you know, right after you land and get into the property um, and you can order it the day before. And so the downside of ordering the day before is if your flight gets delayed or whatever, the groceries end up being there. But it's also really nice to arrive and have that same package every time available for you, you know, eggs, milk, bread, those kinds of things. And then uh, you can go and find the other things that you need. But I would say in, when we're in the U.S., we really try to order all of our groceries if we can, just not spend those times going to the grocery store. And obviously in Europe, it's a little bit different. We're going to the local grocery stores, but um, that does save you time. Well, that was pretty exhausted, exhausted list. Um, hopefully it covered a lot of questions you'd have starting out thinking through how to be a digital nomad and to bring your family with you. It's not always going to be roses and daisies and rainbows. There's going to be tough times, uh, challenging times when you are traveling, especially with kids. There's going to be times everyone's tired and grumpy. Um, but there are so many great things about traveling with kids and having them see the world having them experience different cultures. And these are memories that you're going to make that your kids are going to remember when they're 50, right? They're going to look back and say, remember the time we spent three months in Portugal? Remember the time that we spent a month in Costa Rica, like we just did last year. And, and we we're on the black sand beach, you know, walking the beach every day, seeing turtles hatch. Like those are lifetime memories. And so as you guys get this time freedom and financial freedom using your real estate investments, you have so many opportunities to see the world and to bring your family along with you. Um, we encourage you to think outside the box and realize this is really possible to do um, and to put in the effort to make it happen. And here are some of the logistics you need to think through. And if you get these handled, it's, uh, it's a lot more smooth sailing. Well, thank you for joining us today. Hopefully it was really helpful to those of you planning ahead. Um, and if you really like this episode, make sure to give us a five-star review and we will see you next time on the Doctors Building Wealth podcast. The Doctors Building Wealth podcast provides information only and does not provide any financial, legal, tax, medical, or psychological services or advice. You are responsible for your own financial, physical, mental, and emotional well-being, decisions, choices, actions, and results. You should contact a professional if you have any specific questions about your unique situation.